The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I welcome you to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of 1 John, and, and let me say at the onset here, this text, 12 through 14, has got to be one of the most difficult texts I think I've come across, all right? And you'll see that as we go through here, the, the multiple different opinions on what John is trying to tell us here, all right? So, that, that beware, it is a difficult text, all right? John's purpose, he has told us in the opening verses of this epistle, is to bring his readers into fellowship with God. He has told us that there are ways by which we can test our relationship to see if we are in fellowship with God. In chapter 1, verse 5 through 2, verse 2, John gives us the means of maintaining fellowship with God. Then after showing the means of maintaining that, we have in chapter 2, 3 through 11, the marks of those who are in fellowship, which speaks of an intimate relationship with God. Today we're looking at verses 12 to 14 as John personally addresses individuals in the congregation. Now, I need to remind you that this is a circular letter. All right, we don't think it just went to one church, it was sent around to a bunch of different churches. All right, so he's speaking now to the members of the family of God who are at different stages of growth in their fellowship. After we finish this, then verses 15 through 28, he outlines two great dangers that threaten the fellowship that we have with God and with each other. Now, John has just warned and admonished his readers, saying, and this is where we ended up last week, whosoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, you hear something like this and you recognize, at least I do, that in my own life there are times that I must be walking in darkness, okay, that I'm just not loving my brothers as I'm called to do. You know, I'm just not always sure that I'm walking in the light as I should. In fact, at times, I know I'm not walking in the light. And so John writes this section, verses 12 through 14, to remind his readers and us that even though we don't always walk in the light, we don't always walk as He walked, we're not in any danger of losing our salvation. This is a, I think these verses are written just for the purpose of encouraging the readers. He's been saying a lot of difficult stuff. And so I think these verses are just, I want to encourage you of your relationship with the Lord, of your permanent status with the Lord. And so in verses 12 through 14, we see a different tone that emerges. And John once more addresses himself directly to the readers. He says, I am writing to you. Now John begins this section by affirming the salvation of his readers. He reminds them of their position in Christ, whether they're walking in fellowship or not. And I think he does that in order to encourage, in order to motivate them to cultivate this intimate fellowship with God. I think this section is, like I said, John is encouraging, and I want to share with you a letter that was written to Dear Abby that I think really demonstrates the power of encouragement. This was uh, written to Dear Abby by a school teacher in the Arizona Daily Sun in 11099, published a story. The teacher says one day she had her students take out two sheets of paper and list the names of other students in the room. She then told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down next to their names. She took the papers home that weekend, compiled a list for each student of what the others had said about them, and on Monday she gave each student his or her list. Before long, she said, everybody was smiling. You heard things like, really? One person whispered. Another said, I never knew that meant anything to anybody. Someone else said, I didn't know anyone liked me that much. Years later, the teacher went to the funeral of one of her former students who had been killed in Vietnam. 
Many who had been in that class years before were there at the funeral, and after the service, the young man's parents approached the teacher and said, we want to show you something. Mark was carrying this when he was killed. The father pulled out of his wallet the list of the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Well, a group of Mark's classmates overheard the exchange. One smiled sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in my top desk drawer at home. Another one said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. I put it in our wedding album, another said. I bet we all saved them, said a fourth. I carry mine with me at all times. At that point, the teacher sat down and cried. And she used that assignment in every class for the rest of her teaching career. I think this story shows us the power of encouragement. You know, John has been using some really strong words as he warns the flock about the false teachers who are trying to deceive them. He has just said in 2.11 that if you don't love your brother, you're in the darkness. You're not in fellowship. He's about to say that if you love the world, you don't have the Father's love in you. But before he says that, he inserts this short section to encourage those who may be troubled by what he has written so far. In verses 12 through 14, John is trying to encourage his readers. And in these three verses, he says six times, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. Then he says, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I write to you. All right? There are three present tense clauses, the first three, followed by three aorist clauses. Now, why? Why does John do this? I'm writing to you, I wrote to you. What's he talking about? Well, let me tell you something. Some of the best interpreters of the New Testament are just scratching their heads and saying, we don't have a clue. Why does he do this? There are all kinds of explanations. Some interpreters have understood this change to refer to two different writings. So that the present tense referred to what was currently being written in 1 John, while the aorist referred to something previously written. Well, what? What was previously written? Well, some say well, he's referring to the Gospel of John. Others say, and I like this one, they say he's referring to 2 John. <laughs> something I've previously written, 2 John. Well, that comes after 1 John, doesn't it? So, yeah. Still others have said it's a lost letter that he's referring to. And in at least one case, the source, which was supposed to underline 1 John, or John was, no, 1 John was suggested. In other words, there's some source that he's using, and that's what he's talking about. Well, the reference to a previous writing, whatever it may have been, appears to be the most natural explanation of this switch in the verb from present to aorist. Now, in 3 John 9, the aorist, grapho, right, almost certainly refers to a previous written communication. The content of the three aorist clauses is virtually a repetition of the three present tense clauses. I mean, he's saying the same thing, you know, over again. So if John literally means that he wrote virtually the same thing before to the same audience, then why does he repeat it twice now? Unless they're a little thick, you know, he's on to make sure you people get this. Well, another suggestion is that the author doesn't intend to change intenses to refer to a previous work, but in fact, just it's, he's referring to the same work. He's referring to 1 John itself. And there's a precedent for that because... The author uses the aorist grapho elsewhere to refer to what he's been writing in 1 John. So this is, I hope you see, it's complicated, okay? People are scratching their heads. Why does he do this? The Greek of 1 John is very complicated, very confusing. You're like, you just got to wonder, what, what's he thinking here? Well, let me just say this. I don't see any of these views as satisfactory, okay? John may have changed the tense of the verb as a stylistic variation intended just to call attention to the repetitive, uh, repetitive structure that he's using in this text. So he's just trying to get your attention by doing that. That's as good an explanation as any. Now, in this text, John twice addresses his readers as children. 
then he addresses them twice as fathers, then he addresses them twice as young men. And each time in that order. As I said, this is a very difficult text that interpreters are scratching their heads on so many different levels in this text. So here's the question. Are there three groups addressed here? Well, this may shock you, but there's a divergence of opinion on this. Isn't there always when it comes to any biblical text, you know, everybody's got all these different opinions. There are some who say these three designations are just different words for the family of God. In other words, there's no really difference between the children, the fathers, and the young men. They just all are used for the family of God. And, you know, there's some justification for that as you study it out. They say he's just trying in a literary scheme to encompass everyone in this particular church. Well, others see verses 12 through 14 as addressing the whole group. They see little children there as referring to everybody, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, he's addressing the whole church when he says little children. And then he gives you two subgroups, fathers and young men. And some view the designation children, fathers, and young men to relate chrono to chronological age, not spiritual maturity. And see, I scratch my head when he says that. I'm writing to you children. You know, I, I don't know. Like I said, it's... Others see John as addressing three different groups among the readers and portraying three different levels of maturity attained by them. That's where I'm going to land here, okay? I think he's talking to different levels of maturity. Now, that's not without problems, though, I'll tell you, all right? They see some as mere infants in their knowledge of understanding of God, while others have grown to spiritual adolescence and others are fathers. They've, they've been with the Lord, they've matured, and they know Him who is from the beginning. Now, some say that the reversed order argues against that view because there's no progression here, either ascending from the youngest to the oldest or descending from the oldest to the youngest. You know, and you would think if that's what he's doing, he would go children, young men, fathers. John's just messing with us, okay? <laughs> and that's why people are scratching their heads on so many different levels. You look at this and you're like, what is he trying to do there? Well, I see John, this is the position I'm taking. If you want to argue with that, that's fine. I'm not, this is not a hill I'm going to die on, but you've got to land somewhere, okay? And to me, this just seems to make the most sense. I see John talking about stages of spiritual maturity in the family of God. Remember, he's trying to encourage them. I don't believe he's excluding the females here, all right, just because he uses the male gender. All right, he's talking to all those in the family of God. Now, when you think about spiritual life, you really have to think about growth. Because we're to grow in our spiritual lives. You don't just get it and you start out, boom, I'm, I'm mature, I'm fully grown, I know everything I need to know, I'm right where I need to be. No, the goal of spiritual development is to become like Christ in our practice. And when we think about maturity, we should think about Christ. That's the picture John gives us in 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So becoming like Christ in our conduct is the goal and the object of spiritual maturity. We want to be like Christ. We want to walk like him. We want to look like him. We want to talk like him. This is what I would call practical sanctification, personal growth. Now, in our study of chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, we talked about sanctification. And I said that sanctification, in one aspect, is synonymous with being in Christ. All right, you're set apart in Christ. We are holy. That's our position. Be clear about that. That's where we stand before God once you've trusted Christ. You are in Christ. Your position is you're set apart. But I believe there should be a practical or an experiential aspect to sanctification in us. I believe that Yahweh has called us to live holy lives. And that's what I think this verse is talking about. You walk your daily conduct as He walked. That's what John is talking about when he says that we walk as He walked. He's talking about our lives daily. You know, I think the Bible makes it clear that there are different maturity levels in the church of God. 
I think an understanding of this might help us be a little more loving and agreeable with each other. We're not all at the same place. We all have not been down the same road. God teaches us some of us in one way and others in another way, and he's moving us along. Peter tells us that as babies, Christians, we're to desire the pure milk of the word so we can grow. That's what he says in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Now, I think that's a little confusing the way the ESV puts this. So let's look at the complete Jewish Bible. He says, and be like newborn babies, thirsty for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into deliverance. See, the word sozo, we, we always take that to mean salvation, but the Hebraic idea would be deliverance, all right, in some manner, all right? So we're intended to move on. We're intended to grow in our spiritual lives. We're intended to not be the same place a year later. All right? In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we're all to be growing in our Christian walk. And the, the Bible talks, when it talks about faith, it talks about little faith, great faith, weak faith, strong faith, Lacking faith, perfect faith, dead faith, full faith, growing faith, increasing faith. There's degrees of faith, people, okay? We're not all at the same place. not just, I believe, and that's all there is to it. No, your faith is to grow. You're to have strong faith. You know, Abraham was strong in faith. And he didn't question God. All believers don't have the same faith. We're, but we're to be growing. We're to be maturing in our lives. All right. I think it's very important for us to understand some things about practical sanctification or spiritual growth. I think if we understand this, it's going to help us in our daily lives. All right? So practical sanctification. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about your spiritual growth, you're moving along in maturity with Christ, has nothing to do with your standing before God. You understand what I'm saying there? Do this. Or do this. One or the other. Okay? <laughs> it has nothing to do with your standing. Listen, when you put your trust in Christ, you receive His righteousness. That does not change. Amen. Wherever you are in your spiritual growth, it doesn't change your standing before God. That is fixed. Okay? Colossians 2.10 And you have been filled in Him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, he says, you have been filled in him. We could translate this phrase, you have come to fullness of life. The emphasis in the Greek is on, upon abiding as a result of our position in Christ. The believer permanently holds that position before God from the moment of his salvation. If you're a believer in Yeshua, you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ and because he is complete, you have been made complete. Get that, believer. You're complete in Him. Because Christ is who He is, and we have been made complete in Him, His fullness is imparted to us. Now, the word filled here means entire. It means finished. It means made full, perfect. Essentially, it's the same word used in verse 9 where Paul says, In Him, referring to Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So as all the fullness of the eternal God is Christ, all the fullness of Christ is ours, all the fullness of the Godhead resides in us. That's amazing, people. That is our position. So spiritual growth has nothing to do with your standing before God. All right? If you're a spiritual child, you're still righteous as Christ. You're still perfect before God. If you're a young man or a spiritual father, wherever you are in the process of development, it doesn't have an impact on your standing before God. It doesn't change it. That should make us say, Amen, thank the Lord, praise God. Something, okay? <laughs> your actions are not affecting your standing. All right, secondly, it has nothing to do with God's love for you. You ever felt this way? If I do this, 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 God will love me more. 
He doesn't love you more. He doesn't like you better if you make more progress in maturity. Notice what Christ said to his very immature disciples in the upper room discourse, John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Yeshua knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the words to the end here could be taken adverbally to mean to the uttermost. But antelos could be taken temporally, and then the clause would mean that Yeshua loved him to the very end of his life. Now, after going through John, hopefully you're familiar that he, familiar that he uses a double a lot of double meanings, all right? And obviously, utterly complete also to the end of his life. He, that's, he's using both meanings here. He loves them to completeness. The Lord loves all of his own, and he loves them to perfection. And listen, the disciples at this time were very immature. They were doubters. They were proud. You know what they were doing at this time? They were arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. The Lord's getting ready to go to the cross. He's facing the cross. And they're like, hey, which one of us will be greatest? I'll be better than you. They're immature. And that didn't hinder his love for them at all. He loved them to perfection. People, he loves us with a perfect love. He cannot love us more than he does. He can't love us less. If we're mature or immature, he loves us because he loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. All right? Here's another one. Spiritual growth has nothing to do with time. Now, I'm going to modify that a little later, okay? Because it has a little to do with time, but I couldn't figure out how to say it, so I'm just saying it this way, okay? <laughs> In other words, what I want you to understand spiritual growth is not measured by the calendar. All right? In other words, you say, I've been a Christian for 20 years, I'm mature. Not necessarily. You could be a 20-year-old baby in the Lord, and many are, okay? Because many just get saved, and that's it, okay? Especially if you're going to one of these churches that every Sunday you hear the gospel, and you get an invitation, and then next Sunday the gospel and the invitation, and you're like, I, okay, what's next? You never get what's next. It's just, you know... Feeding the babies, trying to bring people into the kingdom, and that's a great thing, but once you get them in, you've got to do something with them. You've got to teach them, all right? You can be a Christian for a very long time and be immature. You can be a Christian for a short time and be mature, all right? Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, and he said this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not yet ready. And he's saying to these Corinthians, you guys are a bunch of babies, okay? You still need baby food, you still need milk, you can't chew anything because you're just young. You're, you're babies, and it was, they should have been more mature. See, by the time Paul's writing to them, they should have matured beyond their infancy, but they didn't because they were caught up in jealousy and strife and envy. They were immature. Same thing the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. They live on milk because they can't handle anything beyond that. Now, taking into account the considerable period of time that has elapsed since their conversion, he says, you ought to be teachers, okay? The word ought here implies a moral obligation. And when he says teachers, he's talking to all the Christians. Every Christian who knows the Lord and who has spent time with the Lord is to impart what they've learned to somebody else, Okay? The New Testament does not limit teaching to a pulpit. That's not what it's talking about, or some kind of class or whatever. It's just in life. You teach others. You've been down the road. You learn something. You've been in your Bible. You learn something. You share with others. We all are to be teachers passing on spiritual truth. And it's my opinion that, that there's way too little of that going on today. All right? Notice Paul's confidence in the Roman Christians. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. 
that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. You guys can help each other out. You can instruct one another. The word instruct here is the Greek word nuthatheo, which is a very significant word. J. Adams bases his type of counseling on this Greek verb. In his book, Competent to Counsel, he proposes confronting people with their disobedience in life through the Scripture. The verb suggests the idea of confronting believers with the error of their way based on what the Word of God says. So that confrontation should lead them and guide them in the correct way of life. But the tool to be used in this admonition is the Word of God. That's what we're using, okay? These Hebrew believers, he says, you need someone to teach you again. They should have been teachers. They still needed teaching. This implies a spiritual laziness on their part, all right? I mean, babies, there's nothing wrong with a baby being a baby. They're supposed to be that, right? But when they're 10 and they're still babies, you're like, something's wrong here, okay? So yeah, you should be a baby for a while, but there's a growth process here. You're supposed to advance in the Christian life. And when you don't, it produces retrogression. I think you just start going backwards. See, if you're not moving forward, you're going to be going backwards. I think the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, applies in the Christian life too. It works in our lives. You don't just stand still. If you're not going forward, you're going to be going backwards. It's just not a neutral. Or I just, I'm just going to coast here. All right? So just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't mean you're not a baby. But see, a lot of churches, they, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, we need you to be an elder, we need you to be a deacon. They don't know anything about the Scriptures, but hey, they've been around a long time, and they're, they're older, okay? And hopefully older is more mature, but not, in, not spiritually. All spiritual babies don't become spiritual young men. They don't become spiritual fathers. They should, but they don't. You know what's the biggest limiting factor? What keeps a baby from maturing and developing? Nutrition. They're not being fed. How are they going to grow? You know? And that's not the only thing. You know? There are other things. I've read studies where children who were put in cribs and left there without any human contact at all did not develop well at all. They just needed contact. They needed love. All right? All right, spiritual growth also has nothing to do with activity. Uh, what I mean by this is, you know, you can be in the ministry. You can be spiritually busy doing all kinds of full-time ministry, and that doesn't help you mature at all, okay? You should be somewhat mature before you get into that, all right? But because there's a desperate need of anybody to do anything in church, we just grab whoever, right? Stick them in there. Someone's interested in the Bible? Someone brought a Bible. Will you teach Sunday school? Just got saved yesterday. That's good. You can go in there and tell everybody, no. But, you know, again, you, you, the church is desperate for people to do stuff because it's not easy to get people to do stuff, all right? All right, one more. Spiritual maturity is not an absolute. It's relative, all right? Now, when you talk about spirituality or carnality, you're talking about something that is an absolute. At any given moment in time, you're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You can be mature and be in the flesh. You can be an infant and walk in the Spirit. All right? Do you understand what I'm saying here? I mean, maturity takes time. It's a process. You grow, but it's, it's relative. All right? Look at Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a command. It's in the imperative mode. The Christians in Asia Minor are being commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which tells me this. Not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. Right? If they were, why command them to be filled with the Spirit? It's not an option, though. It's a verb that's in the present tense, and so it literally says, keep on being filled. This is a, not a once-for-all experience. It's not like, I'm filled with the Spirit, good, I'll go on. No. It's a continual thing. The verb is passive, which means you don't feel yourself. It's something that is done to you. You can put yourself in a position to be filled, but it's the sovereign Lord, the Spirit, that does the filling. 
Now, the word filled here is the Greek, the Greek word plerao, which is used of something which is filled with content. For example, uh, to fill containers, or in the passive, the house was filled with the fragrance of ointment. Metaphorically, uh, in the passive mode, it can be to be filled with unrighteousness, Romans 1.29. To be filled can also uh, connotes the idea of a man is completely controlled by the powers that fill him. And I think control is a good thing here, for, at least in my understanding. It's the idea, because I say be filled by the Spirit. Filled with what? You know, but controlled, then I understand. Okay, be controlled. You know that alcohol will control you? You ever seen someone controlled by alcohol? Dumbest thing you ever saw, huh? Yeah. I never saw, you know, I remember the first time you know, had a group of people that in high school that we hung around with and drunk, drank, drunk, yeah, drank, got drunk, drank with, you know, and uh, it was coming up on New Year's and we had gone out and partied and I was so sick from the party that I wasn't even drinking on New Year's. So I said, I'll be the designated driver. Oh my word, I could not believe what drunks are like. I mean, when you are one, you don't mind, but when you're just standing by watching them, it's like, this is crazy. Well, that's what he's saying. Don't be controlled with alcohol. That leads to debauchery, but be controlled by the Spirit. Control, let the Spirit of God control your life, your thoughts, your movements, whatever you do. Now, I want to get technical here for just a minute, so hang on, okay? According to Wallace's Greek grammar, nowhere in the New Testament does plerao, followed by in, plus the dative, indicate content. So it seems best to translate in plerao with the instrumental sense of by the Spirit, or by means of the Spirit, okay? And then O'Brien similarly argues that the Holy Spirit is not the content of the filling, but the instrument of the filling. So the verse does not say, be filled with the Spirit, like the ESV does here, but be filled by the Spirit. O'Brien goes on to say, the content with which believers have been or are being filled is the fullness of the triune God or of Christ. No other text in Ephesians, O'Brien says, or elsewhere in Paul, focuses specifically on the Holy Spirit as the content of this fullness. It is better then to understand 5.18 in terms of the Spirit's mediating the fullness of the triune God or of Christ to believers. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And filled here again is plerao. This is a Trinitarian work. The Spirit is the agent of filling. Filling the Christian with the fullness of God. Being controlled by the fullness of God. So Paul is commanding believers, be controlled by the fullness of God. Not with alcohol, not with other things. Be filled with Controlled by God. Now, maturity is a relative thing. It's not absolute in that you are or you aren't. It's relative as you grow. You're making progress. You're going hopefully in the right direction. You cannot grow spiritually, though, unless you're growing in your understanding of God's truth. That's the only way you're going to get there. Spiritual growth is directly related to an increase in your understanding of God's revelation. You're not going to grow if you're not being fed. Okay? And I think there are tens of hundreds of thousands of Christians who are sitting in churches who have not grown an inch because they've never been fed. They've never been fed. Early in our Christian lives, we'd go back to Pennsylvania. We went to a Baptist church there, and I, we went three services because when you're a Baptist, that's what you do. You know, you go Sunday morning. You go Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. So we went four services that week. Every service, a different text from the Bible, same message. Everything was about get saved, you know? And from different texts, and I'm scratching my head thinking, no matter where he goes, he gets the same message. You know, but and that's why people don't grow, because they're not educated. I mean, it was, it was crazy. He even twisted things so badly that, you know, me as a young Christian, I'm scratching my head. You know, he says, the, you know, the Philistines are fighting Israel, and the Israelites went back and got the Ark of God, and they brought the Ark of God into the camp, and Israel shouted, yay, the Ark's here. And he goes, that's a picture of salvation. You bring God in, and I'm like, read the rest of the verses. 
They got their butts kicked and they stole the ark. Okay? I mean, I'm like, why would you stop there and just, and I'm thinking, is nobody else even reading a couple more verses? You have to be fed. You have to spend time in the Word of God yourself in order to grow spiritually. You got to understand God's revelation. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His namesake. Now, the text we're going to look at today describes three stages I'm taking of spiritual development. Three levels of growth in the Christian life. They have no relationship to physical age whatsoever, okay? And they have nothing to do with sex, all right? It's possible to be a man 60 years old and be six months old in the Lord. It's possible for a woman to be a father in the sense used here, a mature, developed, full-grown Christian. A young man of 30 can be a babe in Christ. All right? No, don't, so I don't think physical age has anything to do with this. And that's why I said earlier, you, you have to spend time in the Word of God to grow. It's a process, and it takes time. All right, now, with that as, as an introduction, let's look at our text, okay? <laughs> and it won't take long, okay? Trust me. Hopefully, if, with the introduction, you can just read through the text and you pretty much get it, but I'm going to hit on a few things, all right? He says here... I write to you, little children, because... Now, six times, John used the perfect tense in the explanatory because clauses. It describes action completed in the past with ongoing results. Are your sins were forgiven? They're still forgiven. Okay? That's what he's saying. I'm writing you, little children. So the author addresses his readers here, as he does many times in this letter, as little children. This is from the Greek word technion. All right? Technion literally means offspring of any age. Okay? I am the technion of my mother. Um, relatively speaking, an old man. <laughs> but I'm still a technion of my mother. So when it speaks of children, it doesn't mean infants. It doesn't mean adolescents. It's not speaking about age or experience, whether talking, you know, it's just talking about that you have come from another, and you're the technon of somebody else. All right, you've been born. Those who have been regenerated by the Spirit, those who are partakers of the new nature through the new birth. You know, and that's what he's talking There's a process here. You're born of somebody. Well, because he calls them technon, they're children of God. They're born of God. They're the offspring of God. Now, there are those today, even in religious circles, who believe in the universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. I'm sure you heard of this. That God is everybody's father, and everybody, we're all brothers and sisters in humanity because we all know God is our father, right? Well, it becomes very popular, especially in the ecumenical movement and synchristic religion, trying to say that all roads lead to God because God is just everybody's father. So we're all brothers, and we're all sisters in humanity. But technion tells us that John is addressing those who are offspring of God, which means they're people who are not offspring of God. If God is to be your father, then you have to be a son, and to be a son, you must have, he must have, there must have been birth, all right? You were born of God. And that's what the doctrine of the new birth teaches. It's not simply making a decision. This is something that comes from heaven. This is God's action. Christianity is not just deciding to follow Yeshua, okay? There's a spirit, supernatural element whereby God's very life by His Spirit is breathed into us and we become a son or daughter of God. So by little children here, I believe that John is referring to all the believers, every one of them, and what he says of little children applies to every believer. All right? And notice what he says. He says, your sins are forgiven. i got a tough question here for you, all right? So pay, put your thinking caps on. If their sins are forgiven, who are they? Thank you. Thank you, class. They're believers. They're sin Anybody else's sins are forgiven besides believers? No, their sins are forgiven. He's writing to believers. And if there's one thing that every believer needs to know, it's that their sins have been forgiven. You're not going to make progress if you don't think that, okay? If you don't understand that, you're not going to make progress in the Christian life. Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. See, He lavished His grace and complete forgiveness that covered everything. Scripture is filled with these statements about the salvation being the forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43 To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins. Everybody who believes gets the forgiveness through His name. Hang on to that thought, through His name. So Peter says here that salvation is the forgiveness of sins. Look at Acts 13, 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. And these people were yelling, Amen. And David exclaims in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So their transgression is forgiven. The Lord doesn't count iniquity. They've been forgiven. They're blessed. See, it's foundational to your Christian walk that you know that your sins are forgiven. This forgiveness is the special joy of God's little children because God's forgiveness doesn't come by degrees. It's not like, I'll forgive you a little bit, but as you work your way to maturity, I'll forgive you more and more as you go along. No, okay? Even the youngest Christian is completely forgiven. You will never be more forgiven than you are at the time you are saved. You're forgiven. It's gone. You're wiped. It's wiped out. Your debt is clear. Well, why are we forgiven? Well, he says, for his name's sake. You know, the tendency of most people who call themselves Christians today is to think they're forgiven because of something they do. And if you don't believe me, test this. Here's what you do, talking to somebody. You say, if you were to die right now and stand before God and He asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell them? I've asked so many people that, you know what you hear? Well, I've been, they start listing off the accomplishments. I'm like, eh, wrong answer, Okay. They think they're forgiven because they've done something. They do some religious thing and you know they, they undergo some religious ritual like, I've been baptized. I've heard that. I've been baptized. Catholics will tell you that. I was baptized as an infant. I know I'm going to heaven. You know? Confirmation. Church membership. But the apostle says that the sins of the little children are forgiven for his namesake. Alright? For his namesake. Now, in the Scriptures, when the term name is used, it's a term that refers to a person in a deeper sense than we use that term, name. It's not simply a moniker. That's how we use the term, right? It's a moniker. This is Bob. What's Bob mean? It's Bob. You just know Bob. It's Bob. Okay, they're just little labels we put on different people. But in the Hebrew, it expresses the nature and attributes of the individual. Okay? And that's why I like to say Yeshua. Because Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. You know what Jesus means? It's a moniker. It doesn't have a meaning specifically. You know, the name Jesus doesn't mean, but Yahweh or Yeshua's Yahweh's salvation. So that's the concept of Hebrew. You're forgiven for his name. It involves all that person is and does. To do something on account of the name of a person is the same as doing it on account of that person. All right? So it's on the ground of what Christ has done, His sacrificial death on the cross, that we receive the benefits of it freely by grace through the instrumentality of faith. We're forgiven because of His name. Because of what He did for us. How many of you know who Mephibosheth is? Who was he? What? He was Jonathan's son. Saul was his granddaddy, okay? <laughs> yeah, you guys are you're on the right track, though. Okay. Mephibosheth, you can just say that a few times, he was five years old when he received news that Jonathan his dad, and Saul's grandfather had been killed in battle. So his nurse 
When they get the news, she snatches them up and takes off running. Why is she running? Huh? They're afraid because, see, Saul was king. He's not king anymore. Someone else is going to be king. The first thing a new king did was wipe out all the relatives of the old king so there's no one in contention for the throne, okay? So it's like, oh, we got to get out of here. So she grabs him, starts running. She falls. She trips. He becomes lame for the rest of his life, all right? Later on, David has become king, and in 2 Samuel, we see David asking this question. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why did he want to show kindness? It was for Jonathan's, because David loved Jonathan. If you're familiar with the scriptures, these two had a close relationship. They loved each other, and so he wanted to show kindness for Jonathan, so how can I, I can't, Jonathan's dead, so how do I show kindness? Who can I show it to? Well, they looked and word came back that there was a man left by the name of Mephibosheth who was still living from Saul's house. He was the son of Jonathan. So David calls for Mephibosheth and tells him. David said to him, do not fear. <laughs> and again, he tells him don't fear because Mephibosheth had reason to fear. I'm a descendant of Saul. David might be calling me just to get rid of me. Wipe me out, all right? There's precedent of that. You read the Mesopotamian text, they would eliminate all rivals, all right, when a king comes to power. Well, David, however, treats Mephibosheth, the only surviving male member of the royal family, as the rightful heir to Saul's estate. He says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And he says this, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. Now, that, you're like, okay, what's, what's that tacked on the end there for? I think it's better translated, though he was lame in both feet, okay? He still had this great honor, even though he was lame in both feet. See, Mephibosheth was enabled by the grace of God to spend the rest of his life in Jerusalem eating at the king's table for no other reason than Jonathan's sake. Jonathan's sake. And I think the whole thing is a picture of the fact that it's the goodness of God that is manifest on, to us. Even in our spiritual lameness, as you would, we are enabled by God to enjoy the fellowship of the king for his namesake. That's why we have anything we have, believers. It's for his namesake. I think that's a great illustration. All right, let's move on. Ah, we got two more verses. Can we do it? <laughs> he says, I'm writing you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I see John is using fathers here to refer to the spiritually mature. All right, these are not just people who have kids or people who are older. And no one can become a father in, in that sense overnight. All right, there must be years spent in fellowship with God, spending time in the Word. The inevitable result of that kind of activity, listen, is resemblance. You spend a lot of time with somebody, you begin to resemble that person. There's a mutual identity that grows out of such personal acquaintance over a long period of time. Thus, fathers are Christ-like because they spend time. The fathers know him who is from the beginning. Now, the verb know is in the perfect tense here meaning you have to know him and you still know. You've come to know him and you still know him. And the Greek verb means to know by experience. Now, who is the him here? You've come to know him, who's from the beginning. Who's the him? Well, the Greek verb here, or no, forget that. <laughs> the him, the pronouns in 1 John are very ambiguous. Okay, they can refer to God the Father, they can refer to God the Son. Now, this, in this context, this one refers to Yeshua. It is a statement of pre-existence and thereby His deity. A reference to God the Father makes little sense here because none of John's readers, or even his opponents for that matter, would have doubted the eternality of God the Father. But they did question it of Christ. So he's saying they, he knows Him, he knows Christ, who was from the beginning. Now this level of maturity comes when you don't just know doctrine, you know the God who revealed doctrine. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. It's important to study the Word of God. It's important to know doctrine. But this goes beyond just knowing what the Bible says. You're never going to know the God 
who wrote the word until you know the word that he wrote. You have to start there. But then it goes deeper till you begin to know God. You begin to know his character. You begin to commune and fellowship with him on a regular basis. You literally live your life in awe and wonder of who he is. This is the fathers. They've come to a mature place. Now, I don't know that a lot of people come here, people. I don't know that a lot of people make this advance. I've run into some people. I've had the privilege of fellowshipping with some people I would consider spiritual fathers. And I mean, one of the things I see about a father is they don't get shaken by life circumstances. It's almost like they smile, like, okay, what's God going to do with this, you know? I mean, too many of us, we fall apart over life circumstances. The fathers, because they know God, they're like, well, who cares about the circumstance? I know the God who controls circumstances, and that's the difference. You know, but I've met these people, and it's just, wow, to be in their presence is incredible. All right? He says, I'm writing to you young men. Now, the word young men, nay, in this cost, is found only here in this text, in 1 John, and in the next verse. So it's only used twice here in John. It's not found in any other Johannian works. It's the only time he uses it. It's used several times outside of John's writings, and every time it's used outside, it refers to physical age. So this is one of the arguments someone would use, say, well, I don't think this has anything to do with maturity because he uses this word of age. Well, there are young men, but there's, I think it's metaphorically, we're talking about young men in a spiritual sense. All right? He says, you've overcome the evil one. The evil one here is panaros. Five times in 1 John he uses that, and the reference to the evil one elsewhere in 1 John they all refer to, who is this talking about? The devil. Okay? The evil one is used in John 17, 5 as a reference to Satan, and that's what he's talking about here. Because you've overcome the evil one. Overcome is nichau. It occurs six times in 1 John, 17 times in Revelation, only five times in the rest of the New Testament. Now, if you compare all the uses of nichau in 1 John, you see that the believer's victory over the devil is one that is achieved because God himself abides in us. And his son Yeshua protects us. And as a result, they're able to overcome the evil one through their faith in God. Now, overcome is a perfect active, active indicative which speaks of the culmination of a process. So John's telling him, you've overcome. You already did it. You're overcomers. Right now, I scratch my head and think, wait a minute. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the armor of God. There's a spiritual battle going on. So is the battle over here? No. This is one of the cases of the already but not yet. Now, I know you've got to be familiar with that term. People use it. But the already but not yet only applies to 40 years. Okay? The transition period. They're still in the transition period. The Lord has not returned yet. So they still battled, they did battle with the evil one until AD 70. But it says, you're overcomers. Already, but not yet, but you will be. All right? Now, I think in this context, the overcoming the evil one is best understood as rejecting all of the, the opponents are bringing against them. The false doctrine, the false claims, the things they're saying. They're standing against that. Why? Because they know the Word of God. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll go on. All right? The readers do this by remaining faithful to the message they've heard from the beginning. They're, ha they're holding strong to the message. They know the Word of God, so they're resisting what these people are telling them. Now, why John now repeated these statements almost verbatim is utterly baffling to scholars. It's been, they've been baffled over this for 2,000 years. What's he, what he does now is he just repeats what he just said. Okay? He just says the same thing. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now, back in verse 12, John used the word technion, and here he uses the word paideon. All right? And a lot of translations, you don't even see this if you're just you know, reading it. And it's like he's just saying the same thing. Paideon is a word that means little child. Someone still under parental instruction. By Dion refers to a child who needs to be trained, who needs to be instructed. Their instructors were called pedagogos. All right? 
They're responsible for the instruction of little ones. So I think paideon here refers to those who are young in the sense of their faith. The first time he uses children, he's talking to the whole church. But I think now he's zeroing in on those immature in the faith. You need instruction. Okay? You need to be instructed. They're babes in Christ. They've recently come to know Christ, or they've known Him for a while, and they're just not moving on. They're not growing as they should. And by addressing them as those who know the Father, I think the author is saying, in effect, he's affirming that even though you're young in the faith, even though you haven't been around the faith all that long, you can still walk in the light. You can keep God's commands. You can love your fellow believers, even as children, he's saying, you can fellowship with God. He's been talking about this fellowship and abiding in Christ, and the, and the new Christians are saying, wow, I can't wait till I can. No, you don't have to wait till you grow up. You can do that right now. That's going to help you grow up, okay? So you know the Father. You can fellowship with Him, all right? And he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know Him was from the beginning. This is, he says the exact same thing. He doesn't change this for the fathers at all. He used the aorist tense of the verb grapho here to write, but other than that, he repeats exactly what he already said. You're like, okay, you already said that. <laughs> Why are you saying it again? And then he goes back to the young men. And here John expands on what he said in verse 13 by adding two reasons why he writes to the young men. How do they overcome the evil one? He says, because you're strong. Why are we strong? Because the word of God abides in you. That's why they're strong. See, the characteristic. A spiritual young man is someone who knows the Word of God. You don't get to be a father until you start at this step, okay? Young men, they know the Word. They might not be all that intimate, you know, in the sense of understanding God, but they know what He says. It, the Word of God abides in them. They know what the Bible teaches. They're equipped with spiritual knowledge, so when they hear this false teaching, they can say, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. And see, that's our problem today. Many people can't do that. They hear a teaching, and you're like, eh, is it right or is it not? I don't know. Well, what's the Bible say? I don't know. And that's why it's so important that you read the Bible. See, if you read it, and over and over, you're going to start getting familiar with it, and you're going to know when you hear something that's not true. All right? The children are ignorant, but the young men have a working knowledge of the Word of God. There's growth. There's progress here. Okay? They're not fathers yet, but they're moving in that direction. And the key to growth, people, is spending time in fellowship with God. If you want to be a mature Christian, and I hope you do, you have to abide in His Word. There's no other way. But no matter what level you are at in your Christian life, you can live in fellowship with God. Whatever level, you can abide in Him. You can walk with Him. You can fellowship with Him. And the longer you do that, the more mature you're going to get, the more you're going to grow. So I, I take the approach here that John is talking about different levels of Christianity in the family of God. And I think he's doing it to encourage them. Listen, we've talked a lot about abiding. He's talked a lot about darkness and abiding in the light and keeping His commandments. And you know, I know you're at different levels, but that's okay. You all know you've been forgiven. That's permanent. Now, move on from there, okay? Keep growing. Make advancements. But the only way you will ever advance is through the Word of God. There's no shortcuts, people. There is no shortcuts. We have to be people of the book. That's where it starts. And the more you read it, the more you get to know the author of the book. And then you get to be a father because you're like, I know the Word, but I know the God of the Word also. And that's, an, like I said, that's an incredible position. That's where God wants us. But people, no matter where you're at in the spiritual realm, you're loved by God. Your position is unchangeable. God just would encourage you because, first of all, He wants the testimony that you offer as an image bearer to the world. And the more mature you get, the more you're going to look like your Father. So the more they're going to see God in you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I know it's a difficult text. Just pray I've handled it adequately. I ask, Lord, that you would give us all the hearts of Bereans. Lord, we would not accept or reject anything we hear, but we would study it out to see if it's so. 
Thank you, Lord, for the privilege you give us. Lord, I thank you that we are your children because you have brought us into the family. You've adopted us and you've also given us birth. It's an incredible position, Lord. Thank you that we sit at your table. We fellowship with you because of Christ. Father, help us to understand our position as Mephibosheth, that we're lame spiritually, but we're in your presence because of your love for your son. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Yes, Anthony. I think it's pretty cool how he wrote to teach us that which he just preached. Because, you know, just like a child, you know, you're small, you're little, you grow, you're adolescent, you're teenager, you're old. But they, even, even old people, in certain, I guess, ways, can be young again through mind or whatever. But it's good, it's pretty cool that it's all in that realm that we can lift each other up and encourage you, no matter what, where, you, where you are, you know. I think it's pretty cool how it, to me, just while I'm getting it, how it just coincides. It's like a molded, never, never stopping mold and thing that, that, a, that a person can receive his word. Like it is cool, especially when we understand it, because yeah. I think it helps yeah. us to accept one another. Yeah. Oh, you're not here yet? Yeah. You know, we look at the world through our own eyes, right? Everybody knows what I know. Everybody should be where I am. Everybody should do what I do, right? Isn't that how we look? That's how I look at the world. And I have to keep saying, you know, a lot of times I say, I, can, I don't need to say that. I've said that before. But then I ask a question, everybody's got the blank look on their face. So I'm like, I guess I have to say it again, you know, because, but that's the key to learning is repetition. And maybe that's what John's doing here is just repetition. All right. I want, to, I want you guys to get this. So I'll keep saying it over and over until you do. I uh, got a, a text from Bob. Kershank, he said, uh, sitting in the pew of many modern churches is like staying in first grade your entire life and constantly hearing two plus two is four. It's not this is untrue, but at a certain point, we need to move on to the next grade level. And that's true. But listen, the only way you can is through instruction. It's through knowledge of the Word of God. And listen, you don't need a church to teach you this. You just need to get in the Bible, you know, because that's the problem. Most Christians don't read the Bible. And if you get familiar with the Bible, you're going to grow. You're going to learn. You're going to be looking for other things. You're going to be questioning what you're hearing. You know, you can't question it if you don't have anything to base it on. You know, Christians who know their Bible are dangerous. Okay? Most, church, most churches don't like them. They really don't. The validity of a message on or of a church on whether they gave an offer call or not, you know, so it's like they're preconditioned to that's their expectation. If you don't do that, then you're not meeting their needs. And also, I know I was a Baptist. You judge how good your message was on how many people come to the altar. You know, if you get a lot of people down, boy, that was a good one. No one comes. They're like, oh, man, I didn't. And, and how, as a youth pastor at our church, we had a guest speaker. He preached. He gave the mess, met, gave the invitation. No one came. So the preacher got up and he gave the invitation. You know, if you have a mother, come forward. If you ever had a mother, come forward. You know, I'm one of those kind of things. You know, so he got the altar full, and the teens came to me and well, well, I don't get it. And I'm like, it's just all about pressure and tactics and knowing how to get people to come forward. It doesn't do anything for them, but it's just knowing how to do it. And I said, it's for the preacher. It makes you feel better. Okay. So I feel bad every week. No one ever comes to the altar. Right? <laughs> where is the altar? <laughs> it's in heaven. That's where the altar is. All right. Anybody else? We done? Two things. A couple things I thought of. All right. First of all, I made a mistake during the message. There was a Freudian slip. No one caught it. All right. I didn't hear. <laughs> okay. If anybody catches that, if any of you caught it, let me know. Um, I'm not telling you what it is, but if you missed it, you missed it. Another thing, I want to encourage you that, you know, we talk about these people who sit around and they've never advanced. You know, we can encourage that by encouraging them. Hey, if you looked at this, you know, look what I saw in the Scripture. Encouraging them to move on in the Lord 
if they're not in the right environment, they need someone to encourage them. And then don't give up. We had a kid in our youth department who was there for every event, everything, always there. You just got the impression he could care less about spiritual things. He just was there. And we're like scratching our heads. Why does he keep coming? About 10 years down the road, boom, it clicked and he took off. Just got so excited about the Lord and the scriptures. And it just, so, you know, we just don't know. Just keep on going. Keep sharing. As we read the passage in Romans, you're able to admonish one another. That's what our job is. We're to be teachers. We're to teach other people to encourage them to move on.